my daughter off at the airport to go to college this morning. So I don't know how this is going to turn out. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this place and these people, this opportunity to gather. Uh, it just it, We're always in your presence. You're always everywhere, but, but there's something happening uh, when we gather on the Lord's Day to worship you. And I just pray that we would be aware of it. I pray that we would be aware of your voice speaking through your word. God, I pray that I would be aware of your spirit speaking to me as I speak your word. God, guide us and shape us, mold us into people. Like Jackson already prayed, that, that look like Jesus. That are representatives of who you are in this city. God, as we look at this incredibly old piece of literature that on its surface maybe doesn't feel like it has much to say to us, I just pray that you would um, just enlighten the eyes of our minds by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to mention, as always, we'll, we'll do some Q&R at the end this morning. So if you have any questions, you can um, go to slido.com and type in RevCDA, and we'll take a look at those when we're done. So this is Charles Floyd. He was born in 1782, and he is one of my ancestors on my mother's side. He is one of several reasonably famous people in my family tree. We have a signer of the Declaration of Independence. We have a Secretary of War during the Civil War era. That's kind of exciting. But Charles is famous because he was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And he's extra famous because he's the only one that died. And he's extra, extra famous because he died in Missouri before they left probably from appendicitis, which was untreatable back then. Awful. It's hard to describe the way I feel about that. Do you ever think about how you feel about your ancestors? People, maybe you see your facial features in them, uh, like your great-grandfather or great-grandmother, maybe the story of some distant relative inspires you or is kind of shameful. Maybe you just have this kind of undefined sense of connection to the men and women in your family's past. I feel just a little bit weird about Charles because, I mean, I'm not even directly related to him. He didn't have any children before he died, but he's part of the story of the family, and he's not a stranger to me because of that. The people of Israel have a deep connection to the men listed in this chapter. The whole nation is related to them and they're present, whether they're reading this hot off the presses from Moses or whether they're with Joshua in the land or with David generations later or even in exile in Babylon hundreds of years after that, all of that is connected in some way to this foundational generation and this prophetic blessing that Jacob gives before he dies provides context to these things that they're going to experience for generations later. 
If you follow us on social media, you know we just have a killer social media presence. It's just A+. Plus. <laughs> but we post something once a week saying, hey, this is the sermon series we're in. And this sermon series, if you didn't know, for the last two years has been called From Whence We Came. The book of Genesis is the story of the beginning of us as people, who we are. And this chapter specifically answers that question for the people of Israel. Where have we come from? And so what I want to do is make some observations about Israel's family tree, and hopefully that will give us something to reflect on about our own family tree as Christians. And so to answer the question, where have we come from, I want to give us three answers this morning to think about. First off, we have come from sinners. Secondly, we have come from obscurity. And lastly, we have come from saints. Now, as we go through this section, I'm not going to cover all the details. There's a lot in here. And the Hebrew in this chapter is considerably older than a lot of the Hebrew in the rest of the book. And most of scholars assume that this blessing by Jacob was recorded when it happened, either by Joseph or one of the other brothers or some scribe that was in the room. And then it was passed down through the children of Israel until the time of Moses when he built it into Genesis. And so because of that, the, the way words are spelled and arranged is very different than most of the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And so scholars get confused about what it says. If you read through the passage when Sarah was reading it and your Bible is a different translation, you have, may have noticed that there are a wide variety of words used that were not the words on the screen. And it's because it's really old. And so we're not going to go through all of those little details. The, the gist of the passage is the same either way. They don't change the point of Jacob's prophecy, but it does make it hard to discern 100% what's being said there. So the first thing I want to look at is, is this idea that we have... We've come from sinners. When they can look at Reuben, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength, and my firstfruits of my virility, excelling in prominence, excelling in power, turbulent as water. You will not excel because you got into your father's bed and you defiled it. He got into my bed. Not really much of a blessing for Reuben, but he's talking about something that happened in chapter 35. Yeah, this falling down. That's pretty cool. In chapter 35, we read, Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Now, when we were in this section, if you remember, we talked about how this wasn't just um, uncontrolled lust of a young man. It was a power play. For a man to take his father's wife was to give himself the position of patriarch of the family. He is the firstborn son and he should receive the blessing, the right to carry on the family name and be the member of the family that is the focal point of the promises of God. And he should get the birthright, the double inheritance of the finances. But because he attempts to usurp his father's authority, 
he is denied this. We see this play out in another scene in the, in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. King David is on the run from his son Absalom. And Absalom asks one of his counselors what he should do now that he's taken over the castle. And Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to care for the palace. When all Israel hears that you have become repulsive to your father, everyone with you will be encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. It's the same type of thing. Absalom is, is not just um, inappropriately sexually aroused. He is making a statement and a power play against his father. And this is what Reuben does in chapter 35. And for this act of rebellion, Jacob removes the blessing and the birthright from him and effectively curses him. He says, you will not excel. And this is what we see later in later generations. In, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses blesses the 12 tribes again, much like this. And his blessing for Reuben is, let Reuben live and not die, though his people become few. Wow, that's inspiring, Moses. <laughs> Thanks. In Judges 5, there's this great battle against um, the Midianites. Might, maybe it's not the Midianites. It's one of those ites. And uh, Deborah and Barak call the tribes to battle. And some of the tribes come, but we read this about Reuben. Why did you sit among the sheep pens listening to the playing of pipes for the flocks? There was great searching of heart among the clans of Reuben. This, this story that they tell after the battle mocks Reuben for sitting and going, man, I don't know, should we go to the battle or should we not? Should we go to the battle or should we not? Reuben's reputation ends up that he just doesn't amount to much. And then we go to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, the next oldest brothers, the ones that the birthright and the blessing would go to after Reuben. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. Reuben doesn't get the blessing of the firstborn. Does it go to the secondborn or the thirdborn? Jacob says no, because of the way that Simeon and Levi deceived and murdered the men of Shechem in chapter 34, they will not be blessed either. And we see this play out in the future. In Numbers 18, we read, the Levites will do the work of the tent of meeting and they will bear the consequences of their iniquity. The Levites will not receive an inheritance among the Israelites. This is a permanent statute throughout your generation. The tribe of Levi becomes this, in one sense, special tribe working in the tabernacle and serving the priests. But in another sense, they have no land. They're not given an inheritance. They get some cities that they can live in, but they're dependent upon the other tribes. In Joshua 19, we read the inheritance of Simeon's descendants was within the territory of Judah's descendants because the share of Judah's descendants was too large. So Simeon's descendants received an inheritance within Judah's portion. Simeon's tribe is scattered in the land of Judah because they are small and insignificant and Judah is strong and powerful and large. The reality is throughout this book, up to the end, we don't really see any repentance or change in these men. Reuben's lust, both for sex, his sexual lust and his lust for power becomes his defining characteristic in the end. Simeon and Levi are known for their anger and their brutality. 
And these sins end up having an effect on generations of Israelites to come. Paul says in Galatians 6, Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. We see from these verses that the people of Israel are descended from wicked men. Men who didn't do the right thing. So then we can ask the question, well, what about us? As the crusaders in Europe passed through Germany on the way to Jerusalem in 1095, they razed Jewish villages, they forced their conversion and raped and murdered those that refused. All of this in the name of Jesus. Historian Jonathan Riley Smith writes, if you are of Western European origin, you have nearly a 100% chance of being a direct descendant of someone who had a link with a crusade. Even if your ancestors did not go on a crusade, they would have paid taxes to finance crusades and they would have attended crusade sermons. What about this, this picture? That's uh, Martin Luther, the founder of, of the Lutheran faith and the, the launcher of the Protestant Reformation. The caption says, Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching are the best defense for the German people. In large part, the German church was on board with the Nazis. We recognize things about this. We see that they're obviously wicked. And we go, well, they weren't Christians. They weren't real Christians, right? There's something called the no true Scotsman fallacy which says it's the attempt to defend a generalization by denying the validity of any counterexamples given. By changing the definition of who or what belongs to a group or category, the speaker can conveniently dismiss any example that proves the generalization doesn't hold. Well, those crusaders, they weren't really Christians. Those people back then did that awful thing. That wasn't, they weren't really Christians. And there's some truth to the idea that those who do evil in the name of, the Christ, of Christ aren't really Christians. In Romans 9, 6, Paul says, Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He, he narrows the field and says those who are uh, grafted in by faith are truly God's people. John says something similar in 1 John 2. He says, Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. And so Scripture kind of delineates between people who actually behave as Christians and people who just claim the name of Christ. But the problem is, built into John's critique here, the Antichrist is the one that in some way mimics Christ tries to replace Christ. In other words, sometimes it's hard to tell who's really a Christian, who really trusts in Jesus, because people, turns out, are complicated. Have you seen this to be true? <laughs> yes. And so we can look at people who we go like, ah, those are bad people, they weren't really Christians. But then there's another category of people that we generally approve of. I had Martin Luther up on the screen He's, he's a good guy, right? He says, what shall we do with the Jews? 
I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings are to be taken from them, that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews, that their rabbis be forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb, set fire to their synagogues and schools and bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man can ever see again a stone or cinder of them. Their homes also should be razed and destroyed. So what are we supposed to do with this man who kicked off the Protestant Reformation whom we are all spiritually connected to? Or what about many of the church fathers and their distorted views about women? Or that the most famous theologian of the Americas, Jonathan Edwards, owned slaves? Or more recently, the great apologist, Ravi Zacharias, was just enamored with sexual abuse scandals his whole life. See, the reality is, these are our people. They have gone before us. They live among us. They influence us. First Timothy 5 says, some, sins, some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Sometimes we know people are walking counter to the teaching of Jesus, and sometimes it's hidden for a long time, and it comes out later. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be people that ignore sin, but it does mean that we can recognize that it shapes who we are. It's really popular right now to get, to get mad about sin in the church. Like if you go online, there's, there's whole movements of people and part of the whole idea of deconstruction, which isn't always bad, but can be, is, is like, I just hate the church and the church is so corrupt and, and, and it's fueled by this idea that we point out all of this wickedness in the church. We see sex scandals and the abuse of power and manipulation and that's real, and it's a problem, and we need to call it out when we see it. Maybe some of you here this morning aren't Christians. Maybe you, you came with a friend, and, or you're just kind of investigating the claims of Christ, and one of the things that keeps you from Jesus is the fact that his people seem to be awful. And that's a shame for those of us that bear the name of Christ if we refuse to call out the wickedness in our midst. But we also need to realize that we are those people. When the world-famous megachurch blows up in scandal, we need to realize that we are the people that have built the culture where that exists. We just had a, a community group leaders training last weekend. And we talked about how we have done a really good job in the church of creating a culture where people don't show up to make the gospel big, to make... Jesus, good news for sinners, but instead we come to hide our sin and perform our own righteousness. And if that's the culture that we create, we are going to create the people that we will later call out as wicked. The church of our past is filled with sinners because the church is filled with sinners. And I could spend all day talking about the people past and present that I think are misrepresenting Jesus with this or that part of their lives, that some of them might not even be saved. But what am I doing that misrepresents Jesus? How am I hiding my sin? How am I letting lust and anger rule my heart? What do I need to repent from? Very famously, Paul says in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means you and me too. But then the very next thing Paul says, 
is that they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And we have to ask, do we believe that? Do we believe that the people that are on our list of canceled today are justified freely by His grace? We don't ignore or make excuses for sin. Supporting Hitler was evil, in case you had questions. Owning slaves was wicked. But we have to remember that we are from the same stock as those we would critique. If we forget that, we are in danger of becoming so confident in our rightness against their wrongness that we end up falling into our own set of sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things, talking about the people of Israel, happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. As we reflect on the lives of other men and women that have gone before us or serve alongside us and we see the wickedness in their lives, we sometimes need to be bold to critique it and call it out, but we always need to be humble enough to say, I'm just as likely to go that way if given a chance. As the people of Israel look back on their founding fathers, they realize in Reuben and Simeon and Levi that they have come from sinners. But we also see that they have come from obscurity. Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin. Compared to the rest, these seven don't get a lot of coverage in this blessing. There's a little snippet about how each tribe will work out in the future, but it's not a lot. You can do a search for all these tribes throughout the Bible. There's a few famous people, a few battles won, but they typically get eclipsed in the story. We don't like this. Other people may be obscure, live small lives, live boring lives, but not me. I'm special. I'm uniquely gifted and called. God has big plans for my life. Right? We just watched uh, Joseph, King of Dreams, the animated story about uh, Joseph. And uh, Joseph, when he's young, before he gets sold into slavery, sings the song, Miracle Child, where he says, I am a miracle child. I can't be harmed. I'm wrapped in rainbow. Though fate can be heartless and wild, my life's been charmed and shall remain so. I was made for something more, not to struggle, but to soar. But here's the thing we also learn from the Incredibles. When everyone's super, no one will be. Right? This is the real problem for our cultural moment. We've been taught that in order for our life to matter, it has to be big. It ha you have to be famous. Likes and follows and downloads. Everyone needs to know your name. And for maybe all of us in the room, that's not going to happen. We will live simple lives. We will work at something we sometimes like and sometimes hate. Maybe we will marry, have children, grow old, and when we die, be remembered by a few people for a couple generations and then disappear from history. Doesn't that sound depressing? That is not a good Instagram post. But we think that because we believe that our lives need to be justified by some great accomplishment. This is the fuel that Disney burns right? 
Alan Noble says, the whole project of actualizing, validating, fulfilling, vindicating, establishing, or justifying your existence is built on the faulty premise that your existence is something that needs justifying, or that you are capable of providing that justification on your own. I'm just a nobody, a descendant of Zebulun, living by the sea. I don't matter. That's not true. These seven men have been chosen by God. They've been set apart. Not because of what they've done. Before they were born, they were chosen. Their existence doesn't need justification because God has already justified it. And Christian, that's who you are this morning. You don't need to fight for your own position in the world. You don't need to fight for meaning and purpose for your life because you have been given purpose in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. As long as your social media followers keep growing, as long as you get good enough grades, as long as your business is profitable enough, as long as you follow your passion, whatever that means, no, because of Jesus, you've been given all these things. Your value comes from Jesus. And, and I know many of you might be saying, yeah, yeah, we know that, we're church people. But no, you don't. And neither do I. We're stressed out, anxious, angry, depressed, striving for things that are never going to satisfy us. And this is because we just do not believe the gospel. We don't believe that we matter because of Christ. And we daily go about the business of trying to earn our own place in the world. And it devastates us. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, puts this line in the mouth of Screwtape the demon. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work build up in him a sense of being really at home in earth, which is just what we want. You know who doesn't have a Wikipedia page? Billy Graham's mom. Graham said, what a comfort it was for me to know that no matter where I was in the world, my mother was praying for me. That might be more important than Graham's ministry itself. The faithful prayer of a mother who will never be famous other than being the mother of a famous person. 
So what's God's calling on my life going to be? Pray for your kids. Show them Jesus in the way that they love their spouse. To work hard to provide a home, an education, a faith. Use the gifts and skills God's given you to make the world a little bit better. Speak the gospel into the lives of your friends and let them care for you in the same way. What greater impact for the kingdom of God could we possibly have than those things? The vast majority of our people throughout the history of our faith are simple people living lives out of relative obscurity. Are you okay being one of them? And lastly this morning, this blessing reminds us that we have come from saints. We get to Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belong to him. He ties his donkey to a vine and the colt of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. And to Joseph, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine beside a spring. Its branches climb over the wall. The archers attacked him, shot at him, and were hostile toward him. Yet his bow remained steady, and his strong arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who helps you, by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, and blessings of the breasts and the womb. The blessings of your father excel the blessings of my ancestor and the bounty of the ancient hills. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince of his brothers. We've seen this kind of play out over the last several chapters, but what is happening now is Jacob is giving the birthright, the double portion of the financial blessing to Joseph, and he's giving the blessing, the promise that the, the chosen one that's coming will go through his line to Judah. John Walton says, Genesis 49 is targeting the more distant future when the tribe of Judah will move into a place of leadership among the tribes. Joseph is to be leader among the sons. Judah is to be leader among the tribes. We see two men here that the people of Israel can look back to and be inspired by. Judah, as Scott pointed out to us a couple weeks ago, was just the worst, right? We see him over and over again being hateful, abusive, deceitful, sexually promiscuous. But then we see him transformed. His character is changed to be worthy to lead this nation into the future. The prophecy about Judah indicates that he will prosper and that, the, that kings will come from him. Eventually, King David will come from Judah's line. Joseph's blessing is about how he has greatly suffered at the hands of other people, but has overcome that suffering to be a leader in his family. And looking into the future, Joseph's tribe will be one of the largest and the most powerful. When civil war comes to Israel after the reign of Solomon, the prophets often refer to the split nations as Judah and Ephraim, Joseph's son. So these two tribes are a big deal, and they come from men who have big pedigrees. Augustine, 
was a man who lived a life of sexual sin and selfishness. For years, he ignored the pleas of his mother to repent and follow Christ until one day in a garden, God transformed his heart and he became one of the greatest theologians the church has ever known. John Newton captained a slave ship in the 1700s. He sold human beings as property. He experienced God's mercy towards him, renounced the slave trade, became a priest and an abolitionist, and wrote Amazing Grace. Isabella Bomfrey was born into slavery in New York, but escaped and sued her former master to recover her son from him. She became the first black woman to win a court case against a white man. Later, she changed her name to Sojourner Truth to travel the countryside proclaiming the gospel. Her faith compelled her to speak out against slavery and for the rights of women. Watchman Nee responded to the grace of God in China when he was 17 years old and he dedicated the rest of his life to sharing the gospel with everyone he knew. When the Communist Party took over in his home, he was arrested, sent to a re-education camp, and imprisoned for the rest of his life. His grandniece writes, in June 1972, we got a notice from the labor farm that my granduncle had passed away. My eldest grand aunt and I rushed to the labor farm, but when we got there, we learned that he had already been cremated. We could only see his ashes. Before his departure, he left a piece of paper under his pillow, which had several lines of big words written in a shaking hand. He wanted to testify to the truth to which he had even until his death with his lifelong experience. That truth is, Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners, resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ, watchman me. When the officer of the labor farm showed us this paper, I prayed that the Lord would let me quickly remember it by heart. My granduncle had passed away. He was faithful until death. With a crown stained with blood, he went to be with the Lord. Although need did not fulfill his last wish to come out alive to join his wife, the Lord prepared something even better. They were reunited before the Lord. These are the kinds of stories, their dramatic conversion and life change or the long faithfulness in the, pursuit of, or in the midst of suffering that we love to hear. We, we, we make movies about this. We read bi biographies about this. They are inspiring. We read the biographies of our Christian ancestors with the hopes of becoming just a little bit like them. But the thing is, ultimately, we don't want to be like Augustine or St. Francis or John Calvin or Fanny Crosby or Martin Luther King Jr. We want to be like Jesus. And as much as those who have gone before us show us by the example of their lives what it is to be like Jesus, they are a help to us. But the truest saint in our family tree, the greatest holy one, that's the third saint means in the New Testament, that we trace our lineage back to is Jesus himself. Galatians 3 says, for those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. 
the promised seed who way back in chapter 3 was coming to crush the head of the serpent is going to come through Judah. Judah's grandson times 9 is King David. David's grandson times 13 is King Jesus. Jacob calls Judah a lion, a great, powerful ruler. Listen to this from the book of Revelation. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation to make them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. See, Jesus, the ultimate lion of the tribe of Judah is where we have come from. And Jesus is where we are going. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. The author of Hebrews encourages us like this. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The saints that have gone before us are important to know and to learn from, both good and bad. But we are called to be a people who have our eyes fixed on Jesus, both as the source of our lives and its destination. Let's do some Q&R. Culturally, in Jacob's day, what was a blessing? Were they generally seen as determinative for the future? How should we think of blessings today? Yeah, throughout the book of Genesis, when we get to the time of a a father blessing his children, blessings are more than just like, hey, good job, or you got this. It it was a prescription about their future. This is why when we see um, Isaac bless Jacob instead of Esau, And Esau is like, Dad, do you have another blessing for me? And um, Isaac's like, no, I used it. It's gone. It was a very determinative thing that was passed on from a father to an eldest son. And it meant a lot. I think we should be cautious adopting that posture today. 
I think blessings are really powerful, and I think speaking words of, of uh, encouragement to your children is something that is, is uh, a good idea to glean from this. But I have uh, a pretty good idea that Jacob is speaking as a prophet here. That's what God's word says. I, I don't know that, that about myself. So I would be hesitant to authoritatively bless my children in this way. He said, slavery was wicked, and while I agree, it's good, I also am curious if it was evil, why did God allow it in his people and set up guidelines for it? Yeah, that's one of those big questions about the Old Testament. Why doesn't God just come in and say, like, stop it? All of these bad things need to stop right now. And we see that in a, in a lot of different issues. We see that on the surface about how women are treated often. We see that about how land is distributed. It, it gets kind of tricky. And based on our sense of, of morality and ethics, now we can come to the Old Testament and we can critique it. The best scholarship that I've read, though, actually flips the script on that. And what it requires is a good understanding of what the conditions of the culture surrounding the time of the writing of the Old Testament were like. And when you read other law codes, other uh, nations' perspectives on how to treat people, you begin to see that the laws that are laid down in the Old Testament actually protect and lift up people in ways that the surrounding nations do not do. And while from our perspective, we might want God to say, hey, I command you to stop it right now. All this bad stuff has to stop. In his infinite wisdom, he decides to put structures in place to protect people and over a long period of time, teach them values that undermine the institutions that he wants to get rid of. And this is what we see Today, our, our revulsion to slavery is because we are being faithful to Scripture. But even in the New Testament, we see the outline of the abolition of slavery, but we don't see Paul on a crusade to destroy it. We see him working within the context of the empire that he lives in to provide justice and fairness and equity and love in the name of Christ. And over time... It is slowly dismantled. And why God chooses to work that way, I don't know. I, I wouldn't do it that way, but you don't want me running the universe. What are some practical ways as a church to discourage the putting on display of righteousness and encourage rather honest humility without glorifying sin? That's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that is required is is safety. We need to be people that are safe. And that's probably not a Sunday morning thing. There's a little bit of, I mean, just by the nature of the fact that I'm like 24 inches higher than you, like it just feels performative, right? I'm up here, you guys are listening, and, and there's good reasons for that. But when we get together in each other's homes, if you're in a, in a community group, if you're not in a community group, you should join a community group. The things that we should be striving for, first of all, is safety. That we can be people that we know that in, in this group of eight or six or ten, I can trust you with whatever I have. And that takes time, right? That doesn't happen on like the first meeting. You don't shake somebody's hand and then unload all your junk. 
If you do, don't do that. That's not. <laughs> um, but, but after time, we can create a culture by modeling it. Those of us that we, again, we were talking about this in our community group leaders training. Those of us that are leaders get to be the first ones that model that confession and repentance. We get to say, hey, this, is, this place, this gathering that we're having, maybe in my home, this is, this is the kind of safety that we're providing here. Where you can let go of your burdens and not hide from your sin. And you can hear the good news of Jesus back at you when you confess. And there's no like grand trick to that. It just takes time and it takes a willingness to be the first one to do it. And then this the last thing about glorifying sin. Well, then it takes a bunch of people that are willing to walk with you as you struggle, right? And that, that circles back to the safety. Like, do I believe that these people will just hear me confess sin and just be like, okay. Or will they be people that are committed to helping me walk in holiness? And that's something that we all just need to work on individually and then practice as we live our lives in community together. How do we as Christians respond to cancel culture? When do, when we, when we do see wrong, what is a Christian response? Cancel culture is a lens that does not have any grace in it. Whether you're, whether you're talking about what, you know, in our conservative world or our political world, what the conservatives do, what the progressives do, it's the same thing. It's, you have done a bad thing, you are a bad person, you should not exist. And we're not going to kill you, like actually kill you, but we're going to make your specifically online life so miserable Maybe we're going to try to get you to get fired. Maybe we're going to... I just saw one of the many court trials that's going on right now. Somebody decided to release the names of the jurors and their home addresses to the public. Why? Because I hate you and I want you to suffer. Right? Like, that's cancel culture. And if we're going to be <laughs> Christian in the way we live our lives we have to look through a lens of grace. We have, to say, we have to be willing to say that like, hey, that thing that you stand for, that position that you hold, I don't agree with that. I see the world very differently and it, it might be a good time to fight uh, with my words, with policy, with my own um, following against your position. But you are a human being made in the image of God that Jesus loves just as much as he loves me. And so there is never any excuse to want to destroy people. And that's what cancel culture is. is it just it's wants to destroy people. And it, it wraps itself up in, in, in righteousness, right? Like, well, they deserve it. Well, you deserve it too. And Jesus humbled himself and gave up his life and paid the price for your own sin. So what sort of people should we do be in light of that? That's a good question. We're going to take communion. In this part of our weekly liturgy, we do two things. 
we remember, we focus our hearts and our minds on the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, uh, his being slaughtered and purchased. Uh, he, he, sla- he was slaughtered and he purchased people for God by his blood as the, the saints in heaven sing in Revelation. And we also recite the Nicene Creed together. And if you're new with us, the Nicene Creed was written in 325, almost 1,700 years ago, in response to false teachers who were changing the message of Christianity. They were, some of them were very popular and they were gaining large followings and they were preaching a different gospel than Jesus delivered. And so the church got together and said, okay, this is what it means to be Christian. This is what we were taught by the apostles. If you, if you ask the question, what do Christians believe, the Nicene Creed is a good answer. The final section of the creed, we're going to recite it together in a moment, talks about one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Maybe those are strange words to you. That, that means that we are a set-apart church. We are holy. We are different from the world. The word Catholic just means universal. And apostolic means coming from the apostles. And what we remember in this phrase is that Jesus only had one church, only has one church, one bride. means that we can't disown the weirdos. We're probably the weirdos, honestly. But it also means that we hold each other accountable to the scriptures, to the apostolic teaching. Because we've been set apart for a purpose, to bring this message of good news to the world. So I hope this morning that reflecting a little bit on those that we have descended from is encouraging, even if sometimes it's an encouragement about what not to do, how not to live. But as we sing come up and take the communion elements. There's, there's wine and grape juice for the dictates of your conscience. As we pray, take some time to reflect on what it means to be part of this singular movement of God in the world, his one holy Catholic and apostolic church, which is an organism that lives and is much greater than me or you individually. And it shapes us and molds us. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.